0: In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I'm really excited about today's message. We're looking at John chapter 14. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. And this is a continuation in our series, um, Jesus' words before I go, the words of Jesus to his disciples. John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room and explaining and comforting and praying for his disciples before he dies, which is betrayed that evening and then dies the next day. And what you'll notice is, um, I'll give you a little bit of background that we covered last time. Um, you notice that Jesus becomes more and more clear the closer it comes to his death to explain that he is going to die and suffer many things. I'll give you some examples. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Jonah, uh, he he compares himself to Jonah. He says, for as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a huge fist, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the earth. Um, When he says these things... That's not super clear. I mean, someone says, okay, Jonah's in this fish. The son of man is going to be in the belly of earth. That's not, I don't think, super clear. Or you consider this. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, this is Jesus explaining. So the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He explains this to Nicodemus, which is pretty awesome. Um, soon, a couple of verses after is John 3.16 the one we hang our hand on. But you look at this, that's not that clear, is it? I mean, like Moses lifting up a snake, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? What about this, John 2.19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Well, you say, well, that's clear because we understand what's going to come, but I don't know if it was that clear. Because when the Pharisees looked this over and heard this, they thought, because he said, I'm going to destroy this temple, he was talking about, imagine that, the temple. So when Jesus gets on the scene, like at the wedding of Cana, he does start to explain and give a picture and like a glimpse, like a magazine article or a newspaper article, what is to come. But it's not really clear until it gets closer to his death. This is during the week of Holy Week, I believe, Matthew 20, 18. And tell me how clear this is compared to lifting up a snake or destroying a temple. We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. Any confusion there? They will condemn him to death and turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised again. Raised to life. Is that confusing? No, it's clear. Really clear. And now, speed ahead just a little bit, and it's the night Jesus is betrayed, Monday, Thursday. He's having this conversation with his disciple in the midst of celebrating this festival meal, this holiday meal. And he points out, one of them is going to betray them, him. He points out that Peter, he says, I have to go. And Peter's like, no, Lord, I am going to die rather than let that happen. And really? Because before tonight's end, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Uh, Just as a side note, as far as we know, that's the last specific words that Jesus gives to just Peter until um, after his resurrection. So he gets to look. Peter weeps bitterly because he realized he had betrayed, not betrayed, I guess you'd say denied his Lord. And then after the resurrection, uh, you have the scene, and maybe you can picture it, Jesus is in a boat. I mean, they're fishing, and Jesus calls out to them, and they realize it's the Lord, And you don't pick up in this in Scripture. It just says, well, the boat was a little ways off, about 100 yards. So the boat's 100 yards away. And Peter, recognizing it's the Lord, jumps out of the boat and starts swimming and running to the shore. Which is amazing. That's a long way, So he's going through this great effort, but it's right on that beach that Jesus restores Peter back to his position. And what an amazing kind of things that's going on there. But now, Jesus is soon to be betrayed, soon to die on a cross. Peter's going to deny him. He's going to. Uh, all these bad things are happening. The disciples need comfort, so Jesus gives comfort, and he says it this way. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. 100% comfort. Remember how we talked about couples and a groom and his fiance, One has to go, but he's going to come back. There's bad, but there's a reason why there's bad. It's so that it can be better, that they can be together. And Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. You know the place where I'm going. That's the kind of stuff you want at your funeral. It's beautiful, and it's beautiful, though, because we recognize the end result. Uh, Anyone recognize this picture? These are the caterpillars that you get that eventually become painted lady butterflies. And if you've never gotten these, my goal is that you have more fun with your kids. We had that big storm coming up, and my kids had the Rubber Duck Race World Championships in the street because the water was flowing so fast to the gutter. It was pretty fun. So my goal for you is to have more fun. But you get these caterpillars. The kids love them. They double in size. They eat like Joey Chestnut at like the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. And they get double their size. And then they form this chrysalis. You recognize this. If you've paid any attention in science class, you recognize that they form this chrysalis. And it's like 21 days, I think. Make sure you get more than one caterpillar, by the way. They break free from their chrysalis. And it's this beautiful butterfly. I think this is one of the coolest things ever. You can probably get them for like 12 bucks online. Even adults, you might think it's interesting. I I thought it was. So you get this thing and you get to see these butterflies. Why is it so beautiful? Why is such a wonderful story? Because we know the end result. We know it turns into this butterfly. But what is this like for kids if they didn't understand and haven't witnessed that it becomes a butterfly? Is this normal? How many of you have had a dog that just, you wake up one morning and it's attached to the ceiling in a sack for two weeks? Anybody? Or like humans, no one's like gone to grandpa's house. They're like, well, he's in his chrysalis. I mean, no, this isn't, this isn't normal at all. So if it, unless the kid is reading the very hungry caterpillar, the only comfort he can have or she can have is the words that you tell them. And you say, it's going to be a butterfly. It's going to be okay. That's all the disciples had to hold on to. We can look back and know Jesus rose from the dead, died and rose from the dead for our sins. They hadn't seen that yet. But imagine how blinding the humility would have been. The humility of Jesus. He says, I am the way. So Thomas says, I don't know the way where you're going. Can you tell us? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Think how blinding the humility of Jesus would have been. He says, I am the way, but he looks more like a dead end. He says, I'm the truth, but people telling lies are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. And he says, I am the life, Without knowing the end result, how blinding would that humility have been? I'm the life, and he lays lifeless in a tomb. All they would have had to have hold on to is his words. When everything seemed the very opposite, they would have held on to his words, just like your son or daughter would hold on to. It's going to be a butterfly. It's going to be okay. All they could hold on to is I am the way, the truth, and the life. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at that phrase of Jesus. One, You can predictably three sections, the way, truth, and life. And we're going to talk about what that means for the world then, what it kind of means for the world now, and what that means for us as we kind of live our everyday lives. If you categorize Jesus', categorize Jesus words into popular and not so popular, where do you think these words would fit? Here's what I'm getting at. I don't think it's the love of Jesus that offends people. Everyone, if you have a Christian friend or a non-Christian friend, they generally respect Jesus. There's a book that says they, um, they love Jesus, they hate the church. That's a different sermon, but most people respect Jesus. They appreciate the love that he expresses, love all people. Everybody. No one's going to argue with that unless they're really weird. And no one, I don't think people even argue and get angry about the standard Jesus said. They might not agree that they can set it. They might not agree Jesus really lived perfectly, but they're not going to be upset that someone's actually got some standards in this world. That doesn't make people upset. Nobody wants to follow someone without any kind of standard or any kind of goal or raising the bar above. No one follows people who don't even do things more than they do. So we look at this section. What is really offensive to people is what we just read down. I am the way... Not a way. He says, I am the way. No one gets to the Father except through me. The exclusivity of Jesus is the most offensive thing as far as um, frustrating thing and the most thing that people don't embrace about Jesus. If you're going to have a conversation with people, this is what's going to be frustrating with them. Because the idea that most people have or many people have is that religion is like a mountain. And maybe people have explained this to you. Has this happened to you? They, they say, you know, listen, religion's like a mountain, like you've never heard this illustration before. Religion's like this mountain, and every one of us is just diligently hiking on our path, and then we're going to get to the top of the mountain, and lo and behold, there's a Buddhist, and a Christian, and a Muslim, and a Hindu, and we all had no idea, but we we're all worshiping the same God, We're all just diligently following our path, and bam, we're at the top of the mountain. But Jesus says, I am the way, not a way, the way, no one gets to the Father except through me. The complete opposite view of that, if you put it in bumper sticker language, if you put a bumper sticker on the right side of your bumper that said Jesus is the only way to heaven, I would imagine a lot of people would get frustrated with that. But what's the opposite view? The bumper sticker that says coexist. Have you seen this? And it's got like kind of symbols from all the six world religions, I think, coexist. Um, so it's got symbols from all these religions. And it's basically saying get along, but it's not saying like don't fight. The essence of that bumper sticker is just that. We're all worshiping the same God. We're all just following our path, and we're going to meet at the top. Can you have a coexist bumper sticker on your left side of your bumper, and Jesus, I am the way, on your right side of your bumper? Does this make sense? No, you can't do that. You either A, are a moron, or B, you just don't get it. Because all religions don't teach the same thing. I can't sit down with, uh, I'm all for respectful dialogue. I can't sit down with a Muslim cleric and say, hey, do we believe the same things? He'd say, no, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I can't sit down with a Jewish rabbi and say, we believe the same things, right? And he'd say, no, we don't. Or a Hindu who really understands what they believe, recognizes that we do not believe or teach the same things. Somehow, the person, though, that puts these stickers on has this impression that it's all about the same So they're suddenly the expert on religion. So why why do we make a big deal about the differences we had? Instead, we should concentrate on the similarities. But you know what Jesus says? He says, I am the way. No one gets to the Father except through me. A person who compares religion to a mountain claims to have this God's eye view that they, they are the lone person who recognizes that we're all hiking the same path and worshiping the same God. They don't have the right to say that because they're not God. But Jesus is God. And Jesus is the one who alone could bridge the gap between God and a sinful people. Jesus himself could absorb the punishment of our sins of the entire world. He can take hell into his soul. Jesus, as true human, did what no one else could. He didn't just come up with another prophet or sage. He lived the law perfectly. And his sacrifice that paid the price for sins and spanned the gap between us and God. In him we're restored to God in an inner desire of his heart. He loves us. There's only one person who has ever walked that worth. With a perfect vantage point. One person who has the right to say, I am the way. And what earned him that right is on the top of his mountain. is not a bunch of paths converging. On the top of his mountain was a cross. And the top of that cross, he spread his arms to suffer for your sins and my sins. And the sins of the world. So he has the right to say, I am the way the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. I think it's, um, you don't usually think this way, but the next phrase when he says, I am the truth, doesn't seem that controversial, but um, this would have been equally as controversial, I think, as saying, I am the way. At the time of Jesus, and you're going to sound, it's going to sound a lot like what we know, but at the time of Jesus, Greek philosophy, there were the Epicureans, there was the Platonists, the Stoics, all seeking truth with a capital T. But as they sought truth with a capital T, they recognized, you know, we don't really know all truths. And so truth is really up to the individual. Sound familiar? When you talk to people and intellectual people who are struggling with this, it pretty much comes down to, they say, you know, truth is more like there's this illustration that started, I think, in India. It's a fable. But essentially the the gist of it is this these four blind guys come across an elephant because that happens all the time. And they say, which one of you, what is this animal like? So the one feeling the tail says, well, it's like a snake. The one feeling the tusk says it's like a rhinoceros. The one feeling the leg says it's like this tree, I think, this fig. uh, but And each one is adamant about knowing this is what it is. But for the person you can see there, say, no, this is an elephant. You're describing something very different. But it's the same thing. This is the idea they have. We all just know a little bit of the truth. So just back off a little bit, Christians, and back off everybody. We all just have a little bit of the truth. We're just holding on to a tail or a leg or a tusk. And eventually we're going to figure out what the truth is. The problem, though, when you take out truth, so it's only up to you. You only know a little bit, so truth is really up to you. If you take out truth with a capital T, you got to fill it with something. Nobody wants to go through life without any kind of meaning. you got to fill it with something. And maybe you've witnessed this. People want to, to give meaning to their life by improving the quality of their life, the way that they look and they feel, the things that they get to have, the house they get to live in, the car they get to drive, the motorcycle they get to zip around in. This is what they say. This is life. But eventually that's stuff, right? Anything with a capital, um, small T for truth, wears out. Or someone pursues intellect and they get a doctor. Or they become a double doctor. And everyone looks up to them and people say, that person is so brilliant. But eventually their mind starts to give way and they say, that person used to be so brilliant. Or... You start looking for friends, and you find satisfaction in your friends. You try and find a cause like diabetes or something like that, and you really put all your effort and you have meaning in your life. But all these things betray you. You've seen anybody? Are they trying to hold on to something that they used to have? Has anyone ever witnessed someone with fair faucet hair? I don't know. What's that from, like the 70s? With layers upon layers of feathers... Um, She has this hair, I don't see it too often, but occasionally you see a wife like on the arm of her husband and she's got Farrah Fawcett hair, which is 20 plus years old. And you're like, what in the world is this lady doing? She's trying to hold on to the day when she was beautiful. She's just trying to hold on to it so it never ends. Like on the movie Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico, have you seen this? Uncle Rico, who still talks about his high school football days and throwing the pigskin a quarter mile, what is he doing? He's holding on to a time where he felt was the highlight and he's trying to make that last forever. The truth is, all these truths with a small t, if you even as a Christian start shifting shells instead of saying, God is the point in my life, and you shift that shell and you slide God down, it's got to get filled up with something. And if you replace something God with something, That something's gonna fail. The only thing that doesn't fail is Jesus, who always did what he said he was gonna do, even when he knew he had to go to the cross for your sins and my sins. I am the way and the truth, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Last thing Jesus talks about is life. And when we think of Jesus um, giving us life, we generally think of Jesus. You know the answer to this. Primarily, he's Savior. We don't say Jesus, Savior. That's what we say. Jesus, Savior, wash away. We don't say Jesus, motivator. We don't say Jesus, sage, wash away. We say Jesus, Savior. So primarily, Jesus gives us life through uh, his death on the cross and our faith in him gives us eternal life. But there's also something else Jesus has given us. He came here that we may have life, it says in Scripture, and have it to the full. This is the second part of the idea. Jesus gives us life in its fullness. And there's only two people who have experienced that. Who's the last two people to experience life in its fullness? They didn't have any wardrobe questions when they woke up in the morning. Yeah, Adam and Eve, two people. So Adam and Eve had this perfect garden. There was no pain, no death, no craft stores, no clowns. I mean, it was perfect. But then sin disrupts this and pulls it apart. And no longer do they have perfect communication with God. No longer do they have perfect communication with each other. No longer is there a time without strife or trouble. But what happens with, through Jesus, that this begins to be restored again. Jesus has fully restored it. We only get a glimpse of it now. So now in Jesus, as a believer, you have peace with God. His vengeance is not coming because Jesus took that vengeance. We have forgiveness. Because of what Jesus has done, we now have forgiveness before the Lord. We know we have communication with God. Jesus has opened up the conversation so that we can pray to a holy and just God. How cool is that? Jesus has given us life and given us to the full. Uh, Anyone here know Guy Kawasaki? He wrote a book. Uh, You don't get Painting Lady Butterflies, but maybe you know Guy Kawasaki. Guy Kawasaki wrote, he's not a motorcycle guy, he wrote... um, he wrote a book called Art of the Start. I can't think of the second one. He used to work for Apple, venture capitalist, and he tells people how to start businesses. And some of these same ideas work in as you start a church, not um, the practical end of it, the planning and things like that. So Guy Kawasaki wrote a book, and he he's does speaking tours and things like that. But he said if you're going to start a business to make money, you're probably going to fail. But if you start a business to make meaning, You'll probably do both. You'll make meaning and you can make money. And you have to do that, he says, I'll give you three options to do that. Number one, you've got to improve the quality of life. So we'll go through each of these. There's three of them. Quality of life. And businesses have started to recognize this even how they they market themselves. Walmart, for example, used to say um, always low prices or something like that. Anyone know what they say now? Save money, live better. Walmart. They recognize that if you save money, they're going to improve people's quality of life. So they recognize, okay, by saving money, my life is better. So I got to shop at Walmart. That's a debatable question. Okay. Number two, he said you have to right a wrong. So the only business I could think of, uh, nonprofits were really easy for this. The only business I could think of that talks about this is uh, Burger King. Does anyone know the Burger King phrase? It's been around since I was born. Right, have it your way. Because up until this time, the man was dictating how you ate your burger. But not anymore. That injustice has been fixed by Burger King who lets you have your Whopper with double pickles if you want. They have stopped and they have ended a wrong. They have righted a wrong. Uh, The third thing he said is your business has to do, um, one of these three, it's not all of them, has to keep something good going. I just saw Pepsi, uh, there's a Pepsi commercial with Bob Dylan singing Forever Young in the background. And what's the implication? You drink Pepsi and you're going to be young and cool forever. Yeah, how's that work out? But this, they're trying to attach to that. There's like a youthfulness that continues if you use this product. Um, Other products like oil valet, that's the whole gist of it. They have rejuvenating. It used to be lotion or cream, but you can get that anywhere. Now it's serum. And if they got serum, it sounds like a Marvel Comics kind of thing. This is where the real business gets done. So they've got like rejuvenating serum that keeps you going. But what is the point? The point is that you're youthful and young and beautiful. And by using these products, you're going to continue to be youthful, young, and beautiful even as you grow old. These are truths with a capital T, you know that? What I want you to think about is our Savior. He says, Guy Kawasaki says, to make meaning in your life, you just uh, make meaning in someone's life, you got to do one of these three things as a business. But think about what our Savior has done. Number one, improve the quality of your life. Christ has given us prayer and communication and forgiveness, and peace with a holy God. That's an improved quality of life. He's given us direction in his word so that we can live life and live it to the full. Number two, you have to right a wrong. Our sins separate us from God. It's our own fault. But who steps in to bridge the gap with his death and resurrection? Jesus. Rights are wrong, so that now we are right with God. That's really um, atonement, at one with God. The third thing is he keeps a good thing going. Adam and Eve spoiled perfect communication and perfect wonderment with God. But now Jesus has come in, and we get a glimpse of it on this earth. But isn't that what eternity is about? The glimpse of this good thing going now goes through eternity. Christ makes meaning in your life. And he's the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Amen.